Radio. Let's talk pets. Good day from California. Welcome to the Anything Possible podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Courtney. I'm a veterinary surgeon, former co-host of Pet Talk and Natio Wild, host of Vet Candy Watch. And I'm just an all-around pet lover. As many of you know, this is a podcast where we celebrate the fact that everywhere you look, there is the beauty of the human-animal bond. That bond influences our everyday lives. And and lucky for me, I get to talk to some of the most fascinating and engaging people that help to explore and strengthen that human-animal bond. Today, I'd like to talk about culture. What does that word mean to you? and, And what aspects of culture do you encounter on a daily basis? I know I encounter different cultures on a daily, sometimes hourly basis. There's a a workplace culture. There's a culture among your peer group. There's definitely a gym culture, which both attracts and repels a lot of people. And there are certain customs or a culture in which you talk with your colleagues. And perhaps there's a certain culture in your region of the world. There most definitely is a special culture in the central coast of California. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about veterinary culture. And veterinary culture blended into pet parenting culture, which is in a way human culture. After all, the central ethos of this podcast is that we're bonded in beautiful ways to animals, even if it's in ways that may not be readily apparent. So by talking about veterinary culture, I see it as talking about human culture, but through the prism of veterinary medicine. I'm super energized to speak to my guest today because she has identified an aspect of veterinary culture that needs help. And she has ambitiously set out to improve it. But before we have the pleasure of hearing from her, I wanted you to think about the last time you had a cultural interaction with somebody, whether it's positive or negative, and what did you learn from that interaction? One situation that bubbled to the surface of my mind when I was thinking about the conversation I was going to have today was one Thursday evening in late October. I had just finished a busy day consulting, performing surgery, talking with clients, writing records. The day flew by with such a dizzying pace that I was shocked when I saw it was 7 p.m. Although I was swamped all day, I remember that every month on a certain day, the veterinarians in my community meet for monthly continuing education seminar. And this is really important for all the vets in the area. So I wanted to try and get to that conference. So I'm trying to squeeze the most out of every minute, you know, so I quickly finish up at work with six minutes to spare before the meeting. I throw on my jacket. I leave the building focused on being as punctual as I possibly can. The traffic, fortunately, was lenient at that hour. I made good time and I arrived just as the tail end of other veterinarians in the community were walking through the door into the lecture hall. Doing my best, like half walk, half run, I arrived to the meeting, uh, you know, just sneaked in the door and I stopped at the sign-in sheet and a company representative was sitting by the door as I signed in. Ordinarily, company reps will take advantage of those few precious moments of stillness to, you know, introduce themselves, express gratitude that you're attending the lecture and other, you know, give you their contact information, usually in the form of a business card. Well, this rep offered a quick perfunctory greeting of hello, but then quickly changed her tone. She said, I will be sitting off to the side. So please make sure when you look to that left side, when you bring the bread out, the din of the conversations around me almost seemed to evaporate into like a silence and time just like slowed down just a little bit. I felt like she and I were like the only ones in the room at that moment. 
I could feel the pores on my face open and the precursors of sweat developing on my forehead. You know, I said, maybe it was just me. Perhaps, perhaps I didn't hear her clearly. I said, I'm sorry. She repeated herself, this time more emphatically. The bread, when you bring out the bread, I won't be sitting with the group. Make sure you find me to the left. Okay, this time I definitely heard her correctly. She clearly believed that I was part of the catering service for the meeting. I quickly compared my clothing to a server I saw in the distance and and not even close. I had a white and blue plaid shirt with khaki pants and a jacket, and the servers had black pants with aprons. It never even occurred to me that my outfit could be misinterpreted as a server's uniform. A bit taken aback by the comment, I wanted to return fire with something biting or acerbic for the perceived slight I was feeling. But I also wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps she didn't mean it as it came out. So I just offered a simple, hi, I'm Dr. Courtney Campbell. What's your name? Her face flushed immediately, and she offered an effusive apology. I absolutely accept her apology, but as you can see now, that interaction pretty stuck with me. When I was in decent shape, I used to be mistaken for all kinds of athletes and celebrities. But at this stage of my life, I was mistaken for a server. And to be sure, servers and caterers do a yeoman's job and are extremely hardworking. My sister and I worked catering jobs almost all through high school, and we enjoyed it. So it's not the food service affiliation that had me perplexed, but the fact that at that moment, she didn't see me as a doctor or a veterinarian. Perhaps that moment wasn't racially motivated. Perhaps it was just an innocent mistake. But if it wasn't, was there something about the fact that veterinary medicine is so homogenous that it wasn't in her natural reflex to consider me as a doctor at that moment? Was it totally foreign to her to see someone who looks like me as a veterinarian? In 2013, the Atlantic magazine described veterinary medicine as the whitest profession in America. So could a more inclusive, pluralistic, and multicultural veterinary medical profession help decrease interactions like those? Well, there is no one else I would rather talk to about this than my next guest, and she will join us right after a brief pause. So stick with us, and we'll join you on the other side of this break. My dog, Mojo, was half beagle and half coonhound. He ate everything in sight. He would swallow things whole, including a chicken carcass, a bird nest with a bird in it, and assorted stones and sticks. We had to take him to the veterinary emergency room. After surgery, Mojo had skin issues. He was constantly itching and scratching, chewing on his feet, and chewing the hair right off of his legs, being irritated, lethargic, and just not the same dog. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. When we put him on the Dynavite, he took right to it. All of these symptoms disappeared. Dynavite is nutrition. If you want the dog to be healthy, you got to feed it something healthy. Something that he actually likes to eat. You need to put him on Dynavite. Dynavite for life. If you love your dog, you don't just want him healthy, you want him to be happy. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Okay, we're back. But before we get to our exciting guest, I want to be sure to let everyone out there know how to get in contact with me. If you have any questions, thoughts, or topic discussions, you could reach me at, the, at Dr. Courtney DVM on Twitter and Instagram. Questions with positivity and love will get answered with priority. 
but not exclusivity. So I'll pretty much answer anything. So as we discussed before the break, there is a need for a more multicultural and diverse veterinary medical profession. And I'm happy today because I have the pleasure of speaking with someone who recognizes the need and is doing something about it. Today, we are joined by Dr. Marie Sato Quicksall. Dr. Quicksall comes from a multiracial Japanese and American family. Born in Japan, she moved to the U.S. with her family as a toddler. She grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and attended The Ohio State University for both her bachelor's degree in zoology and her veterinary degree. And upon graduating veterinary school, she began her professional career as a small animal general practitioner in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, before relocating to the West Coast. She currently practices in Bainbridge Island, Washington. Diversity and inclusion has been a passion for Dr. Quigsall. As a first-year veterinary student, she founded the Ohio State Chapter of VOICE, which stands for Veterinarians as One Inclusive Community for Empowerment. And later, she served as national president of VOICE. Dr. Quigsall is an incredible athlete and has a true passion for ice hockey. She transmuted that passion for ice hockey into a coaching position where she promoted diversity and inclusion in the sport when she was in Pittsburgh. In 2017, she became a founding board member of the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association, MCVMA. Dr. Quicksall currently serves as the president-elect of the MCVMA. Welcome, Dr. Quicksall. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're super happy to to talk about this. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, it's this is a conversation I've been dying to have with you, and uh, I know it's been, you've been difficult to track down because we've been so busy, you and I. But I finally got you, so I am just going to, you know, we're just going to jump right in. I, I really want to know, I really want to hear your thoughts and insights on this topic. Before we do that, though, could you set the scene for us? It's it's something we do on this podcast called Set the Scene. What was the scene like growing up for you, and kind of how what what was the aspects of that scene that led you into veterinary medicine? Oh, well, I've just always been really interested in animals from the time I was born, practically. Um, When I was a toddler, I apparently used to uh, befriend feral cats in the park that were scared of the adults when I was as young as like two or three. And just yeah, always just fascinated with animals, drawn to them. They seem to have an affinity for me as well. So, Which um, I wouldn't recommend to everybody, right? If you're out in the park (laughs) and you see feral cats, I wouldn't befriend all of them, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I apparently didn't know better when I was two, but right, uh, the right. cat seemed to like me, so I never, never got injured from it. Oh, thank goodness! But yeah, as, as I got older, I kind of developed this love for science and wanting to know how things work and how to fix things and you know how to help animals, how to help people, and I just naturally evolved into um, interest in veterinary medicine. Um, I think I was five when I told my parents I wanted to be a veterinarian, and that never changed. <laughs> Wow. So you had that desire early in life at age five. And I think a lot of people, when they're starting the journey of veterinary medicine, they develop that focus early and they are dogged and determined towards it. And that's why I think this profession is filled with so many really incredible people because that determination starts at an early age. But speaking at an early age, at age five, there's a bunch of experiences that will shape that journey that will ultimately shape us as an adult. What were some experiences or what were some aspects of your life that you think really contributed to your goals and your um, focus in multiculturalism, in, in, including multiculturalism in veterinary medicine? Yeah. So I think that from an early age, I was always 
you know, my, my parents were very good about trying to make sure we felt included in both of our cultures. My mother is American and white and my dad is Japanese and I'm uh, actually a dual citizen and they both spent a lot of time living in each other's country. Um, my mother lived in Japan for eight years and then we moved to the U.S. Um, when I was a toddler and my dad has lived in the U.S. for the last you know, 30 years or so. And so they both understood what it was like to be the outsider, to be the other, to be different. And they understood how important it was to feel connected to your culture. And so they both went out of their way to make sure that my brother and I could feel connected to both of our cultures and make sure that we felt that we never had to choose, that we were not half white and half Japanese, that we were both and we could be both simultaneously. And from a young age, I think that I knew that that made us a little different than the people that we were around. We briefly lived in Chicago when we moved back from Japan and we lived in a very segregated neighborhood. I was about three, so I only have vague memories. But, you know, my mother reported a story. We, she took us trick-or-treating, had no idea how segregated it was. And, you know, the, the people on our neighborhood definitely gave her strange looks when she walked down the neighborhood, the street in the neighborhood that was not white people. And that had nothing to do with the Halloween costume? No, nothing to do with the Halloween costume. Everybody kind of stayed to themselves. And unfortunately, they did not include mixed race families. So we lived on a street corner and there was another Japanese and an American couple. And uh, I believe my mother said an Israeli family and uh, our three families played together, but pretty much the rest of the neighborhood wanted nothing to do with us. I do remember being three years old and sitting down in a sandbox and the parents of the other children came and retrieved all of their children out of the sandbox when I sat down um, and took them home. And they were not allowed to play with us because they did not believe in mixing of the races, which, you know, and I'm not that old. Um, this was the late 80s, early 90s when we moved back. And then we moved to Columbus and it wasn't quite as in your face, but I definitely spent a lot of my childhood feeling different, feeling other, getting a lot of pushback from, you know, my uh, racial identity. You know, not most of it wasn't physical or anything like that, but I always was a little, felt a little different and didn't understand why it was such a big deal when my family, you know, didn't care. You know, my American family were are is very diverse, you know, very accepting. And despite what the stereotype is, my Japanese family was also extremely accepting. They never treated me or my brother different than any of my cousins on either side of my family. So I just didn't understand why it seemed to everybody else it was such a such a difficulty and why they wanted to categorize us as one or the other when nobody in my family cared. So it kind of pushed me into into uh kind of diversity and inclusion work and trying to figure out why that was such a big deal and how I could make it easier for other kids that came after me. That's fascinating stuff, particularly because you highlight the fact that this is an ancient history. You know, you were saying that this is in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's obviously still occurring today. That sense mm -hmm. of belonging that you experienced as a young child, those experiences stick with you. You know, um, they are traumatic and they will continue to stress you, particularly if you find a similar situation in your adult life. As in mm -hmm. your professional life, in your adult life, have you experienced anything like that, particularly in the landscape of veterinary medicine or with pet parents? Have you had any personal interaction like that? You know, I have been fortunate that I haven't had too many direct interactions. And part of that is that because I am half white, a lot of people assume that I'm white and they don't necessarily see the Asian side. You admit that I'm, I'm white passing and that gives me a different experience than people who aren't. And that doesn't change my racial identity the way that other people perceive me. But I have more encountered being the person who felt the need to say something because I was the only person of color in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I've had things 
said around me, not necessarily directed to me by clients or staff members, and then kind of felt that pressure of being the only one who saw it as problematic and whether I should say something, how I say something, what's the best approach. You know, I've, I've felt that quite a few times. I'm, I'm fortunate where I am currently that it's very diverse and I don't have that pressure. But my first few years in, in practice, you know, I felt that pressure to kind of represent, which I think a lot of people of color do because a, a lot of us are the only ones in our practice or in the classroom or in other situations. So definitely experienced that where, you know, somebody said something and you know, and a lot of times it was out of ignorance, not necessarily out of malice, but um, I still felt the need to to try and say something. And sometimes it was difficult, you know, when I worked in a more rural area and I had a um, a client bring in a dog that was named the N-word. And uh, I'm so was- sorry, I got to interrupt you. The dog's name was the N-word, like the actual word or he had called his dog the N-word? No, the actual word. Wow. And, and that, okay. and I, unfortunately, I, I've heard a lot of crazy names. I don't think I've ever heard somebody come in with their dog named that. I actually had a kitten come in a while later too, named that. They were both had black fur. And um, where, where is this? It was in a rural area outside of Pittsburgh. A rural area outside of Pittsburgh. So that's just like a thing in that area is just to name your animals that particular word. Again, this is yeah. like, it's, you know, people listening right now, pet parents, veterinarians, everybody, this floors us because. You know, mm-hmm. one thing is people say, well, how, you know, how bad is that, is that word? And I say, you know, it's bad because we call it the N word. All the other curses, we actually say the word, but this word's so bad that we don't even say it out loud. And they're having, they're naming their pets that. So how did you handle that situation? That's interesting. Yeah. So, and, you know, I was a, a newer grad and, okay. you know, you know, my staff was all white and, and they you know, felt uncomfortable about it too, but nobody was going to say anything or cancel the appointment or, you know, tell the owners that that was inappropriate. And and apparently it was not uncommon. And I've actually heard other people say the same thing in other areas. So I don't think it's exclusive to that area. No, no, um, no. We de- definitely don't want to unfairly characterize or paint that particular area. I just didn't yeah. know. I just wanted to set the scene of what you were mm-hmm. kind of experiencing at that time. Yeah. And, and I felt you know, my gut instinct was, you know, say something, it's inappropriate. You know, I don't like looking at my computer screen and seeing that word. And as a new grad, I just didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to approach my boss about it. I didn't know if I was going to get any backup as a as a new grad and, and as the only person of color in that practice. The whole time I practiced there, I only probably had a handful of people of color as clients. And I was there for five years. So I wasn't sure that I would be received well despite I did have a great relationship with my boss and my coworkers, but as a new grad and the only person of color in a very non-diverse area, I just had no idea how to handle that. And so I, I ended up not saying anything and feeling very uncomfortable about it. And I feel now I probably would say something to my, you know, my, my boss, but at the time I just, I was a new, you know, I was a more recent grad. I didn't know how to approach that situation. And, And I know that that's something that we hear from other people that they don't know how they're going to be received if they, you know, uh, try and address a situation like this, especially because most of them are the only person of color in their practice. And so that was one of the things that drove me towards the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association and, and try some more support for people in those situations. Which is incredible because you highlighted something that you are living this sort of duality, which which I really wanted to drill down on. You used a phrase, you said, I know that I am white passing. 
but I will hear comments, um, you know, in my area, I'll hear people make comments in my presence and I will feel compelled to either act on letting them know that that's inappropriate or I'll feel compelled to say something to change that environment, that toxic environment. I think a lot of people, I think when people hear that, they say, oh, exactly, exactly what I was thinking is that as minorities, as in multicultural situations, there is that phenomenon of being white passing where others perceive you as being white or Caucasian or not being a minority or a person of color. Therefore, they feel more liberal and more willing to say something necessarily pejorative about a particular mm-hmm. race. Talk to me about that experience of potentially being white passing, but still having that des- still having that need to say, no, 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 this is inappropriate. I want to take real action and even and go as far as creating a multicultural veterinary medical association. Yeah. So, you know, I found that as a mixed race person, you know, I still consider myself to be a person of color, but my experience is different than um, what some other people have. You know, I do get some of the benefits of white privilege because when people look at me, they, you know, a lot of white people see a white person. If I, you know, see Asian people or, or other people of color, they often will see the Asian aspect. But, uh, you know, other white people, they, they see what they expect to see. And so I get some aspects of that that I don't get some of the direct interactions uh, that some people of color get. But I also, you know, sometimes do hear things that people would maybe not say in front of a person of color. And, you know, that's one of my things. And, you know, it wouldn't say it in front of a person from that group. You maybe shouldn't say it out loud. It's a good rule <laughs> to have. Yeah, that's a great yeah. rule. And then I've also had other you know, different interactions based off of that. I've had, you know, some people act hostile to me when I do say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm half Asian, almost like I was trying to sneak up on them and, and uh, it was a secret or something. And, and to me, when I look in the mirror, I just, like, you know, I, I'm half Asian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they feel like, then I can see sometimes they're calculating all the things that they said and, and right, oh, right. That appropriate or not appropriate. You know, some people will just get a little tongue tied if it if we were talking about, you know, racial issues or other delicate things or I've had outright hostile reactions. I've had people argue with me about my background. Oh, you you can't be Asian. Look at you can't be Asian. And I'd be like, Well, I'm not necessarily gonna produce my birth certificate or a picture of my dad because I don't need to prove anything to you or right. it's kinda like yeah. show me your papers kind of thing, yes. Yeah, yeah. And um and, and I think that's a, a unique experience is, is having people question your background and question your identity. You know, oh, well, you're not really Asian because you look white. And I'm like, well, okay, I was born there. I, you know, go back all the time. I have deep cultural connections. You know, I've stood on the farm that my family has been farming for close to a thousand years. I know exactly where I came from, but other people just because they don't see it themselves feel like they can tell me my identity. And I find that being quite offensive and upsetting, especially since I am so close with my father. You know, my my parents and I always joke that, you know, I'm much more like my father and my brother is more like my mother. And I'm, I'm deeply attached to my family and, and particularly my father. Um, I, I feel like I'm very much like him, not just, you know, culturally, but um, our habits and things. He's an engineer. And I think my love of science came from him. And so it feels like people are are attacking not only my identity, but my relationship with my father and my father's family, you know, so, and I think that that is something that mixed race people find more often and may not always be addressed. And so it's one of those things where I, I face issues based off of my racial identity 
but sometimes people dismiss it because they think I don't have any issues because I'm white passing. And I have faced that from both white people and from other people of color, less frequently from people of color, but it, it has happened. So it's a definitely a different experience. And that kind of pushed me to wanting to, to make it easier for other people who come after me and, and particularly, you know, my children, my children are my husband is white, so my kids are only, you know, a quarter Asian, but culturally they're just as invested as I am. They love to eat Japanese food and we speak a little bit of Japanese in my house. I'm not fluent, but um, certain phrases, things. So, but they have blue eyes, both of them, surprisingly, with the, their genetics. And my son is blonde. And so when my Asian father goes to pick them up from daycare, he definitely gets some uh, some extra scrutiny and, and some look. I love that. I love that you say they have blue eyes, but they speak a little bit of Japanese in the house. And that's that's mm-hmm. perfect. If you, you know, if you're fluent in Japanese and uh, that's just not something that people expect. And so knowing that, knowing that this is not something that people would expect, you know, if you particularly are white passing the impetus to start a multicultural veterinary medical association, a lot of people may not even see that as you may not understand that. They just like, why would you do, why would you start this? Why would you endeavor to create an organization like this, particularly because you are white passing? So talk to me about the, the genesis among your, the, with your colleagues and to create a multicultural veterinary medical association and what you had to do to start this organization. Yeah. So for me, when I got to vet school, I had no idea that we were one of the least diverse professions um, until I you know, walked around campus on a tour and I went, okay, where is everybody else? Basically, um, I had no idea it was even an issue until I got into the profession. I, I grew up in a pretty white suburb and the practice I worked at was primarily white, you know, before I got to vet school. Um, and so I, I didn't realize that that was the same everywhere within the profession. So I actually went to a meeting with the uh, dean of students at the time and and said, you know, does anybody addressing this diversity issue? And they said, well, coincidentally, they're launching a new national organization for vet students focused on multicultural diversity. And that was actually the year that they were launching Voice nationally. Oh, um, Yeah. So that was 2000. Well, I started vet school 2007. So I got hooked up with Cornell was the in- initial place that we had voice. I got hooked up with them, started the Ohio State chapter, ran that for three years before I went to clinics. My third year, I was um, national president and I felt like I was doing something. I felt that I had a community there um, within the greater veterinary community. And then I graduated and there was no equivalent organization after Voice. Mm-hmm. You know, Voice was for and is for vet students, um, but there was no equivalent organization after. And that's kind of where a lot of the rest of us felt that we had, you know, we had Voice when we were in school and then we get out to practice and, you know, we don't even have that handful of other classmates that are diverse to, to talk to because a lot of us are the only, you know, person of color in our practice. And so the Facebook group started by Kara Williams and then uh, Rachel Cesar, who was one of our prior board members. They started a Facebook group in 2014 and added a, uh, a bunch of people from Voice. Kara was national president of Voice after me. And so started as a Facebook group. And then uh, after a few years, try, you know, decided to go ahead and, and try and make us a formal organization. Um, and that was in the fall of 2017. And that's when we 
the board formed, the initial board formed, and we've been in the background trying to build up the organization with we don't have a lot of experience, so it's been a, a steep learning curve, but we're finally starting to gain some momentum, gain some sponsorship, kind of get our name out there so people can know who we are and what we're interested in doing. And we're fortunate to be able to this year in 2020 expand our board and start to be working on some more projects. So we're, we're really excited about all of it, but it was kind of a grassroots. We saw a problem and, and we didn't see anything that was uh, addressing it at the time. So we decided we were just going to have to step up ourselves. That's awesome. I, I like the idea. I like the idea of just people seeing an issue, starting organically, founding board members, not a lot of experience, and still and making something incredible like this organization. I think a lot of people listening will say, "Hey, I'd like to do something like that, but I don't have a lot of experience, or I just can't get to it. I can't find the time." But somehow you buckled down, gathered your peers, and said, "We're going to make a difference. We're going to make this happen." What have some of the strides, some of the changes, or some of the things you've been endeavoring to do with MCVMA and some of the accomplishments thus far? Again, I completely understand the fledgling nature of it in 2017. However, I love to see those strides you're making on social media and other platforms. Have there been some accomplishments that you've been really proud of with MCVMA? Yeah. So, you know, on, on social media, we, you know, have for a veterinary group, I think we have a pretty decent sized group. We're around 1200. I think we're most right. active on Facebook, but we are on some of the other social media like LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. We have some discussions on there. Recently, we had a discussion where somebody was facing a difficult situation in work and posted it honestly and, and would like some advice because, again, they're the only person of color in their practice. I think once or twice, we've tried to hook up an interested kid, trying to get them some experience to try and enter the field, those kinds of things. You know, we last year at the 2019 AVMA convention, we had a networking event, which was great. So we could network with other, you know, veterinarians. And we also had several CE sessions and several uh, hot topics working with some of uh, the other uh, affinity groups. Um, we did a panel with uh, Pride VMC and Wavaldi on implicit bias. We also had a panel of some of the other cultural affinity organizations and, you know, what we're about and what we're doing. So that was great and, and getting a little bit more recognition, getting our name out there. So we are currently interested in trying to expand veterinary access to care in underserved areas. We're working on one project. It's in the very early stages. We'll hope it, it goes somewhere and trying to, to bring a, a shelter with veterinary services to underserved urban area. So, you know, we're, we're really early on a lot of the things, but now that we're expanding our board and we're fortunate to, enough to get a couple sponsors more recently, we've got a little bit of a budget versus the first year and a half we had no budget. So Yeah, it's really hard to do things. I mean, let's just be clear. It is hard to do things without the money backing. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, it, it's incredible. You know, I, I love bouncing ideas off of my colleagues, right? I love that idea of support. And when you have other veterinarians in the building, it just, it gives you that bolster, that feeling of support, that safety net. Like, hey, I'm seeing this interesting case. But besides that, besides that just bouncing ideas and interesting cases and, and using that collective intelligence to provide better health outcomes, I feel like this network of MCVMA goes beyond that. And so one of your visions or part of your mission statement is to support colleagues. You said that there was a colleague who was having a difficult time at work being the only person of color. 
What is MCVMA's goals in, re- in regards to that, providing that network for people for those difficult situations? It seems to me that MCVMA goes be- up and, and beyond some of those, the classic interactions of support among colleagues. Yeah. So, you know, we definitely want to to be able to connect so people can, you know, have somebody to talk to that's been there or, you know, even if we can't fix the problem, say, yeah, that's not okay. You know, I've been there too. It sucks. Right. right. Just somebody that can relate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And and we want to, you know, one of our goals is to try and set up a, you know, a mentorship program, you know, for, you know, veterinary students, um, veterinarians, and, and also, um, you know, people wanting to enter the field. We also, you know, from the get-go have wanted to include um, not just veterinarians, but other people who work in the field, technicians, assistants, because a lot of them are also isolated and may not have anyone else to talk to. So we also want to try and do that for, you know, like technicians and, you know, someone that they can talk to and, and not just on the medical aspects of the job, but also, you know, the client interactions, interactions with, uh, you know, coworkers, that kind of stuff. So that's definitely one of our goals. And, and we want to try and create resources, gather resources that are already out there and then create resources for people. You know, one of the things that, that I'd like to do is maybe create, you know, some webinars and things about, you know, how to, to improve um, diversity, inclusion, equity within veterinary practice, you know, some webinars that people could share with their coworkers and, and maybe get some CE credit and stuff for that's one of my goals. So we definitely want to create those kinds of situations um, where we can hopefully support these people and, and maybe make practices a little bit more diverse. And also try and encourage veterinarians to, to think about bringing care to areas where they may not have it. Um, and a lot of those areas may be, you know, communities of color that are, are missing out on veterinary care. And sometimes there's, you know, stereotypes that certain communities don't care about their pets as much or aren't willing to spend as much money. Uh, you know, we want to dispel those myths and, and know that, you know, sometimes it's a matter of access. They, if there's no veterinarian around, they're not going to get the care. So those are, are some of our, our long-term goals. So we're hoping now that we're getting some momentum that we'll be able to, to work on some of those more in the next year. That's awesome. They, you know, I think it's so important. This is a topic that's so vital to those in the area, uh, whether you are a person of color, whether you're not, and you just want to see a more diverse and pluralistic uh, veterinary medical profession. I think it's such a worthy endeavor. I do want to talk to you about one particular topic that really interests me, and uh, I just don't think it's talked about enough, and that is bias within veterinary medicine. Um, Would you mind sticking around with us just for a few more time? We're running out of time just a little bit, but I really want to talk to you about bias in veterinary medicine. Will you hang on and join me right after this break? Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. All right. We'll be right back with Dr. Quicksall. Begging to hear more of your favorite show? Full episodes of all our shows are available on demand. Go to PetLifeRadio.com to fetch our entire lineup of possum pet podcasts. Also, dig us up in iHeartRadio and iTunes. Let's talk pets. Live and on demand only from Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> And we're back. We're joined by Dr. Marie Quicksall. She is the president-elect 
of the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association. And we've just been talking a lot about just what this group endeavors to do, some of the accomplishments thus far, how they're growing more and more each year, and the goals of just creating a more diverse and inclusive veterinary medical profession. And, and right now, I want to talk to Dr. Quicksall about, I want to talk to Dr. Quicksall about a topic that I don't think is discussed a lot, and that is bias within veterinary medicine. And I say that because it's starting to, it just recently started to fall into the public zeitgeist with on the human side and in human medicine. In fact, there's a popular comedy program that just that pointed out there recently there was a nursing book that was pulled from shelves and this is about two years ago it was pulled from shelves but they found phrases in this nursing book and this is a huge really really thick textbook I mean like the, the, the size of your head I mean it's so big and, and the phrases in that nursing book they said you know Hispanics may believe that pain is a form of punishment and must be endured if they're entered you know to enter heaven African-Americans may believe that suffering and pain are inevitable and Native Americans may pick a sacred number when asking to rate pain on a numerical scale. All of these just weird and sort of outdated and superannuated cultural associations and cultural stereotypes, things like that. I want to talk to you. Our profession is complex because you have the cultural affiliations of your colleagues at work. Then you have the cultural interactions of your clients, the veterinary client interaction. Then you have the cultural interaction of how clients perceive pets, what place in their life they perceive pets. And that's something that on the human side, they don't necessarily grapple with. They may grapple with these cultural affiliations, interactions in a different way. But I find our cultural challenges or the challenges we face in the veterinary medical profession to be multifactorial and many different levels. What does MCVMA endeavor to do in terms of diversity and inclusion and, and how does that influence your daily life? Yeah. So, you know, the topic of bias is so interesting because it's something that I think is pretty pervasive and, and I mean, everybody has their biases, you know, on, on an individual level and, and things. But, you know, when we're talking about biases that are affecting, you know, other people's day-to-day lives and, and um, you know, that's something that is definitely an issue. And, and like I said, when we were at AVMA last year, we did do a, uh, I did a panel with um, some group members from Pride VMC and Wivaldi about implicit bias. And that one is really interesting to me because it's something that people don't even realize that they're doing most of the time. And it's that one of those things where people will give somebody more scrutiny because they're part of a specific group. So, you know, one of the things that I've seen is, you know, I, I'm a female hockey player. That's not super common. And, and I always feel like I have to work you know, just a little bit harder than any guy on the ice to even get the same amount of respect. And I feel like sometimes in veterinary medicine, I felt that too, that, you know, as a woman, sometimes I feel like I have to work a little bit harder, be a little bit more professional, be a little bit more doctor-y <laughs> to get the same level of respect sometimes from a certain right. client. You prove um, your sense of belonging through excellence and almost this dogged perfectionism. Yeah, I know exactly what you're yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, other people, because it's not in their face and because people aren't, you know, saying certain phrases to you, aren't yelling racial slurs at you, it means that it's not that bad, but it still definitely affects people on a day-to-day basis and it can be draining. You know, when I was a young vet, I faced being, you know, people think that I'm younger than I am. So I got a lot of the, oh, well, 
are you even old enough to be a doctor? And, you know, some people are like, oh, that's a compliment. It means you look young. And I'm like, well, it's also they don't believe everything I say because they think I look too young. So it's not as much of a compliment as people say. And do you feel um, like comments like that can also be wrapped in a thin veil of misogyny as well or no? Oh, I think so. Sure. I definitely think so. Because, you know, I got called little lady more than I cared to when I was a new vet. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. no. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's one of those things that some people, if they don't understand that context, go, well, what? why is that offensive being called little lady? And I'm like, because that they were not taking me as seriously. And that was an indication of their implicit bias that as a young woman veterinarian, they didn't take me as seriously. And I think that some people find that as well um, as people of color that, you know, you, you get this additional scrutiny, this skepticism sometimes by people who think that you don't fit the mold. And sometimes people are very defensive when you bring it up because they don't, they don't realize that they're doing it. And so it's harder to address, you know, it's, it's easy to call out the person that names their dog the N word or should be easy, sometimes not as easy as we think, because right. that's, you know, obvious and in our face. But when it's people dismissing you and they don't even realize that they're doing it, that's a little harder to address. That is so true. I want to talk about gender and then and then race for a second. When they're looking in on the on the human side, you mentioned that you worked even harder to be taken seriously. And and this can have real world medical implications too on the on the human side. They'll look at in a study in psoriasis, the number of patients and the severity of disease didn't differ between men and women. Yet there were far more treatments given to males rather than females who were just given more lotions and even things like coronary artery disease, irritable bowel syndrome, knee arthritis. They were investigated more seriously in men than women in some of these studies. And they just basically found that women's complaints or symptoms are yeah. sometimes not taken as seriously. They're looked at either as hormonal or hysterical or that they're crying wolf. Do you think yeah. that there is that trickle down effect towards the pet in situations like that bias? So on the human side, what I mean to be crystal clear is that if you have uh, somebody have symptoms, they're not taken as seriously. And on our side, if there's somebody reporting symptoms in their pet, it's not taken as seriously. Therefore, that pet gets suboptimal care. Do you think that happens? I think it does. You know, I think that people will, you know, sometimes have preconceived ideas about a pet or their relationship. You know, like I said, I've, I've heard the stereotype that, oh, thus and such community doesn't, you know, value their animals the same way, which I completely disagree with, but they'll say, oh, well, you know, you know, maybe in their mind, they're thinking, oh, this person doesn't value their pet as much. I'm not going to offer them the gold standard because they're not going to spend that money. And I think that that could definitely have an impact on the care of the animal. And, and some of the people may not even realize that they're doing it because it may be, again, that implicit bias. That's, um, that's fascinating just to drill down on that. So it's not even a situation of, okay, this pet is getting substandard or suboptimal care or less than the recommended care, whatever phrase you want to use, because it's declined. You're saying that because of our inherent biases and, and our implicit bias, sometimes we don't even offer that to that particular client because we believe it will be declined. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it can be people, you know, judging their economic status, mm -hmm. socioeconomic status based off of their race, based off of their gender, based off their age. You know, I've, I've seen people say, oh, well, that that person's young or that person's a you know elderly person. They probably don't have the money. You know, in school, they always tell us, you know, always start with the gold standard and then go from there if they can't do that. 
Um, and I think that that's, you know, really important, but, you know, sometimes people can get sucked in by their own biases. And, and like I said, everybody has their own biases, but, you know, if we want to be providing the best care for as many pets as possible, we have to be aware of those biases and, and do our best to try and counteract them. And that's the entire, not the entire point, I'm sorry, but that's one of the pro guiding lights of the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association. How have your, it's to help with that bias and to help create a more inclusive and diverse profession. How has your idea, how has this organization been received? So for the most part, I think it's been pretty positive. You know, people are, are excited in what we're doing. And, and now that we're getting our name out there, you know, we've had some groups come and, you know, want to talk to us and try and point people in our direction if they think that we can help. So I think that that's good. We were hoping to get a little bit more support um, among some of the bigger organizations like the AVMA. You know, we were happy that, they, that we did get to do some CE events and, and hot topics and stuff last year. We were hoping to do that again this year. We've gotten a couple of our proposals so far accepted, a couple of them are rejected. The hard part is that we want to get support from some of the other organizations, but we do want to maintain our autonomy as well because you know there are some people who feel left out from some of the bigger organizations um, and, and that's part of the reason that they are interested in a smaller organization like us, the MCVMA. So we've gotten for the most part positive support. I think that we've definitely gotten some people Posted on a couple of larger vet org organization Facebook pages and and seen some negative responses, you know, oh that's you know that's you know, our profession doesn't do that, um, that doesn't happen, which I think a lot of people of color hear more so than they, we would ever like. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things I was thinking as far as detractors is like what would and what would somebody who has you know a different opinion that would make maybe we won't call it negative they just have a different opinion about the the goals and uh, mission statement of this organization one of the most common themes from detractors is is what that it's just not needed that uh, veterinary medicine isn't like that or that the, the country has moved past that what what are you seeing from detractors you know that yeah like that that is not needed that you okay. know we should be we're already an inclusive you know profession you don't need to be separating us by creating a separate organization, things like that. And, you know, my argument to that is if, if we were as inclusive as we claim, why are we one of the whitest professions in, in the country? Sure, um, sure. You know, so, um, and again, if, if people aren't used to being the other, being the outsider, they don't always understand how difficult it can be, how lonely it can be. Um, and the need to have uh, conversations with people who have been there. You know, I think about it when, you know, in a similar manner that, you know, when veterinarians need other veterinarians to vent about that, that understand the issues, understand the complexities are for our profession. Again, we need to have a group for people of color to be able to have those conversations with other people who have been there and who can get it. And so some people don't necessarily see the need for that. And, and you know, if they're fortunate enough to never have had to have the need for something like that, you know, that's great for them, but that's not the situation for everybody else. 100%. And that's that, that's the key for me is that sense of belonging. I think that, you know, there's a variety of people in veterinary medical profession who may not say it out loud, but they're looking for that sense of belonging and they may feel like an outsider and all of those situations that you so uh, eloquently described as being the only person of color in the room or seeing a handful of clients who are of underrepresented ethnic groups or racial groups. And then even in school, we didn't even get a chance to talk about that, but certainly we can, you know, and on a later date, it's all of those levels from school, 
within the profession to client interaction where that sense of belonging is missing. And I think that this organization is, um, that's part of the reason why I want to talk to you today, because I just think what you're endeavoring to do is so outstanding that I think we should definitely shed more light on it and have a, a deeper conversation about it. So many things we could get to. There's so much we could talk about, but we're running out of time. So what I want to do is just thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me today and just having the time to talk about this. Uh, if you know, if you're open to it, I would love to do a round two sometime and talk about all the achievements and strides that MCVMA is making on this uh, veterinary landscape. Would you agree to a round two sometime in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to thank you so much for having me on and, and supporting us. You know, everybody in the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association really appreciates it. Oh, man, it's it's a, an absolute pleasure. It's a, it's a pleasure. So thank you again. And I'm just going to encourage everybody to check out your websites and on socials. Quickly, Could you would you mind telling us where can people find out more about your organization? Yeah, so our website is mcvma.org. Pretty easy. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, I think we're mostly most active on Facebook because that's kind of where we started, but we're on those other platforms too. And if people have any questions or, or anything, they can always email us at multiculturalvma at gmail.com multiculturalvma at gmail.com. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Well, thank you again. And I encourage everybody out there, please check out the MCVMA. They're doing amazing work and um, I can anticipate excellent things for you in the future. So thank you so much, Dr. Quicksall. And I hope we get a chance to talk again real soon. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Excellent, folks. There you have it. That was Dr. Marie Quicksall from Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association. Uh, in 2017, a fledgling organization, but now has started to blossom and really get um, recognition about some of the amazing work they're doing. As you heard, she had this desire to be a vet even at age five, and, and her parents and family were really focused in making sure she had no multicultural upbringing. And then she was president of Voice. And then uh, some of the founding members of Voice, some of the members of Voice who are in executive positions, then started the MCVMA. So this organization is just continuing to help students, vets, and veterinary technicians, and also looking to spread that resource into underserved areas. So I just think it's a just an incredible, such an incredible mission, and uh, I hope that everybody who's interested will help them with that mission. So it's about a sense of belonging. And I think the MCVMA endeavors to help all those who don't necessarily feel that way to help a more inclusive feel, foster a more inclusive and diverse environment. Okay, well, fantastic. We're going to have an excellent episode next time. And just remember, there is nothing stronger than the human animal bond. Thanks for joining us. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.